Take your Bibles and you can open up to Genesis chapter 11, since I believe when we get started, that's where we'll be before we jump back in. Uh, we're going to attempt to look at all of Revelation 17, and in part because of doing that, um, we're going to not read the whole passage just for the, the sake of time. And so Genesis 11 is the first place that we'll be this morning. Let's just pray and ask the Lord's blessing as we begin. Father, we do again rejoice in how you are working, even in the specific lives of those who are here, and even the witnesses of uh, seeing the outward sign of the inward reality of salvation this morning through the baptism, and knowing that that's just a small piece of what you are doing. And even as we turn our hearts and minds to Revelation and even see not only you as a saving God, but as a one who comes as well to judge the wicked and judge sinners. And even as you look towards a future where you will return and where you will judge and you will take back what is rightfully yours, we are just reminded of your power, of your care, that you would even love ones such as us, that you would love not friends, which would be understandable, but you loved us while we were still enemies running from you. So encourage us in that truth, even as we look towards what is very clear enemies who have continually rejected you as we come to Revelation 17 and serve as an example of what it is to run full heart after false religion and the self-destruction that follows. We just pray that you would be honored and glorified even as we look here, that we would not lose sight of that this is, yes, the end for Babylon, but it is not the end, but the beginning of what we look forward to in a couple weeks of Christ's reign on this earth and a fulfillment of promises we long for as your church. We just ask this in your son's name. Amen. The reality is that by our nature, we are all worshipers. We've seen that week after week that we are made to give something worth, to worship. It's most evident in young couples. Call it infatuation. I try to convince a 16-year-old that it's not, right? That, that it's, it's, it's love. But they're made to love something above everything else. And you see that expression probably earliest, maybe a little bit in, you might see it in academics, a young student just thinking, I get my worth by being the best in the class, that kind of competitive spirit, which of course spills out when you look at uh, competition like athletics. They, they love these things and they want to be good at these things and they find, want to find value and worth by giving it all that they have to give it, that they might receive some of that worth back. But the reality also is that although we are made to worship because of Genesis 3 and then Genesis 11, which we're going to look at as well, kind of amazing after if God has saved the whole world, that is to say he has saved Noah's family, that the world might continue but judge the rest of the world, that his descendants are going to be the ones who build the very Babel that is still here at the end, that is marked by this false religion. But we are marked by fallen humanity, that we have what Augustine called disordered loves. I recommend to you, if you're looking for something interesting to read on prayer, one of the most famous letters that exists on prayer in church history is Augustine who wrote to Proba, a widow who had wrote Augustine, not knowing that he would be well known. 
2,000 years later. Um, but she wrote him and said, I want to know how to pray. What are your advices? And in general, you should go read it. But he kind of says, prayer helps you with this issue of disordered loves. That you are made to love something. You are made to worship something. And prayer is one of those means that God has given you to work through if you are rightfully ordering them. Because reality is we make things that are good like family and like vacation and rest. And we make those good things great things. And they do really well as good things. But they don't do very well as great things. I'm often reminded we have uh, two dogs. And I've mentioned them before. And you know, you don't mention your kids. You can mention your dogs, I guess. Uh, but one thing about dogs is they make wonderful dogs. But they don't make such great people. And you see that confusion in our world today where you look at them and go, this is an amazing dog. But if you try to make it a person, it never turns out well. If you try to make a good thing, a great thing, it's not meant to be that. It's not meant to bring the fulfillment that only can come from God as the creator. Well, the big smorgasbord of that issue that's out there, you could call it idolatry, but here it's going to be in a specific form of false religion. And false religion is going to provide that smorgasbord ways of finding value, finding fulfillment, finding worth by providing different ways you can pick out things that you can worship to try to fill what God has designed in you. I said you can try to make a good thing like family or knowledge. You could be someone who just loves information and just love to study. I'm just going to know more but never come to real knowledge. We live in an entertainment culture and you can one from entertainment and vacation to the next thing. And I'm sure we'll have a lot of fun if you're like my family, you're going to enjoy tomorrow together. That's a good thing, but it isn't a great thing. Working for the weekend will only last for so long. Some pursue power. Some pursue it in hobbies. And I can be one as easily just to go from one thing to the next thing. But you have to recognize they're never going to give you the fulfillment that what we're longing from the garden in the fall, which is reconciliation with the creator, with God himself. We've looked at Gen or Revelation here uh, through uh, chapter 17. It it's still that continual drumbeat of judgment. We can't run from it. And so we're kind of just trying to embrace it here this morning. There's some vivid imagery, as we're going to see, uh, of the harlot and the adulteress, which is all meant to be what it is which is you're going to have vivid ideas of what has gone on here. It's imagery that flows all the way from the Old Testament, from the beginning to the end. We've seen that this is a book that is about the return of Christ, but his return in judgment, that John saw a vision of the things that are in chapter 1, chapters 2 and 3. Then he saw and wrote the letters of what he saw to the seven churches, which we understood at chapter 1, that those are the things... That, that are, and then the things that will be, chapter 4 and on, that are future. And so as we come to 17, we've, we've really seen the world end, is what happens in chapter 16. We, we see the huge hailstones, it's extremely severe. The seventh bowl, and so seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls, the seventh bowl is released, and it is, it is over. But this parenthesis, parenthesis kind of brings us back into focus in on, well, what happened? What are the specifics? How did Babylon fall? And that's what 17, 18 are about before it returns to kind of the chronology of the reign of Christ. So flip back to with me, though, to Genesis chapter 11 to give us a little reference. Revelation does this often. We, we very much uh, 
early talked about the nature of Revelation being what I call the, the most biblical book in that it references, which makes sense because it's the last one. It assumes knowledge that you know what has come before. And so you very much see uh, this is creation in Genesis and uncreation in Revelation. You see these certain things come up over and over and over again. And although maybe there's a long period of the last days, which we are part of, Jesus says we're in the last days, but it's going to come full circle at some point. And so we could look at Genesis chapter 3 and the fall, that is where Satan is deceived, which is really the root of all false religion, which is knowing better than God, that she is tempted to take the fruit because has God really said is the question of the serpent and is the question of all false religion. Is God's way the only way or is there another way? That's what we're tempted with. But after the, the, the flood has come and destroyed all but Noah's family. If you look at chapter 10, it's interesting because we're going to see this introduction of this Babel, which is going to be turned in history into Babylon. And everything is going to come back to Babel here. And God is going to deal with Babel once and for all in the end in Revelation 17. But I find it so interesting. If you look at chapter 10, verse 9, that we learn a little bit about Noah's family. And here we learn about a man named Nimrod. It says he was a mighty hunter before Yahweh. And therefore it said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before Yahweh, the beginning of his kingdom was Babel and Erech and Akkad and Kalneh in the land of Shinar. And if we were to work our way back, you'd say, well, okay, he's related to Noah because he's in Noah's generation. Yes, he is. He's a great-grandson of Noah. And the great-grandson, so not removed, but a couple generations, is the one who builds Babel, it would seem, this great warrior when you come to chapter 11. And it is not a good thing. Because look at 11. Because this is the history of why is Babylon in so much hot water? Why do we have two chapters that talk about the fall of Babylon? Yes, there's a way in which this is symbolic, but there is a reality in history that this is where this rebellion continued. Not just Genesis 3, but even after the whole world's destroyed, the great-grandson of Noah builds this tower. It says, chapter 11, verse 1, Now the whole earth had the same language and the same words. And it happened as they journeyed east and they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and they had tar for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city, a tower whose top will reach into the heaven. And let us make for ourselves a name, lest we be scattered over the face of the whole earth. We don't know everything, like a lot of biblical story and narrative. We know from the rest of the story that this is not something that pleases God. That at the root of this question is the similar issue of not only Satan who desired to be like God and then tempt Eve. There's another way. Maybe you can be the creator. Maybe you can be the master. And here it seems to be that same attitude from their heart. That same thing that I want to be worth more. I want to build my city all the way to heaven to be like God. And maybe even to say if God would come down and he tried to destroy, destroy the world again, maybe they think this tower will be so high it'll protect them. But Yahweh comes down in verse 5 to see the city and the tower which the sons of men built. And he said, behold, they are one people and they all have the same language and this is what they have begun to do. So now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there and confuse 
their language so that they will not understand one's, one another's language. And so Yahweh scattered for them from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there Yahweh confused the language of the whole earth, and from there Yahweh scattered them over the face of the whole earth. This introduction of, of Babel is the introduction of creating would seem this false religion. If you kind of get into history and what these are built and how they're built, it is around false religion. It's marked by rebellion. If you looked a little earlier, they are commanded to scatter, to multiply, to inhabit the earth, but they stay in one place with one language and try to advance, would seem, to rebel against God. They're marked by the pride that says, I want to not be a creature, but to be like God. I have a good friend who just has a great sense of humor, and he, he can be very funny and very self-deprecating. And one of the things he always says is that if you ever had to, if you ever wrote a book, he would title it "Know Your Place." And he's always been a, kind of an associate pastor and and a guy who helps and taught in seminaries. And it's just his way of saying, "Hey, I get it. I'm not the best looking guy. I'm not the greatest preacher, but I'm going to serve the Lord in my way." He says, "I know my place." And he's actually a really gifted guy. So I, I would defend him and say, no, man, you're, you're not giving yourself enough credit. But I, I see that in that sense of which he's marked by that, which not pride, but humility. But he realizes, you know, there are things we are and there are things we are not. And we are not a creator, not a true creator. Are we going to be happy being the creation? They were not. The pride swells up. And therefore, it moves into, I would say, marked by arrogance as well. This idea of works righteousness. They don't need God. In fact, if the flood would come, maybe they've built something that, that they won't need God's ark. They will save themselves. And even in that, and of course, a mark of all false religion, that they're not going to look towards God's salvation, but they will try to save themselves by their own works. Every false religion is going to be marked by these things. So now come to Revelation 17, and we are going to see here the final fall of all false religion. Revelation 17. And it's this idea that encompasses not only 17, but I think really a view, a comprehensive view of false religion, which is, and you're going to see it by the illustrations used, the metaphors, which is that false religion is appealing, but it leads to destruction. Like many sins... It looks good. And therefore, you think, what harm can it do? One bite of an apple. What really could it be that bad? It's appealing. It's alluring. It's, it's something that seems on the outside to be harmless or maybe even good. But understand that it brings with it destruction. And the illustration is used here of, we're going to see the woman, the, the harlot it's called, who rides the beast, which we've seen throughout Revelation, is a term for Satan's. I had someone ask me why, why the ladies get, get a hard time. I mean, you look at Eve, uh, you look here, it's, it's always in Proverbs, the adulteress, which I think this language is pulling from. It's always the harlot. Why, why not get after the guys? Well, I really do think that actually is not a hard answer, which is it's using actually a compliment to the women, which is women are beautiful and attractive and alluring, and men are not. It's saying it's this quality that on the outside, there's nothing really redeeming about a guy. And so a guy would not be tempting in that same way. And so it uses that language to say in that culture, it's true, but that's just true in general. Guys are not going to be seductive in any way. 
They're kind of gross. I got four boys. Come to my house. I get it. And so it's no knock. It's really meant to compliment. But of course, in this case, it's the imagery that's used of Israel over and over again. And then, of course, carried on, which is from Babel to the end times, this false religion, where they are not a married couple, which is the imagery of Israel, right? God is the husband. Yahweh is the husband, and they are the wife. So this is, this is not, say, not, they're not married. This isn't God's people. Therefore, even the imagery of harlotry is probably more fitting, but it's that same idea of unfaithfulness. They've had opportunity over and over again, which if we were to take the time to go back, they were offered the truth, the good news of the gospel, and yet they reject it over and over and over again. And so we're going to see here three, what I'll call false promises of false religion. And number one is that false religion promises happiness, or you could say fulfillment. It's the idea that over and over again, the alternative to Christ is this false promise of happiness, fulfillment. Look at chapter 17, verse 1. It says, Then one of the seven angels who have the seven bowls came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, and I will show you judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. And so the, the one angel of, of the seven bowls comes out and says, This is worthy of you seeing the consequence. Because, of course, this is a vision that gets written down that is given to the churches to know not only that Christ wins, but also know that he will judge all false religion in one, one day. And so he's going to show him particularly a judgment of what he calls the great harlot, which is going to be identified as Babel. And it's the one who sits on many waters. Just to go down to verse 15, because it's helpful to explain what does he mean by waters. And 15 says, it's the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples and crowds and nations and tongues there in verse 15. So it's this idea of authority, the authority that the great harlot, that false religion plays at the end of the world, that people come together and there is unity, but around the wrong thing. Of course, we've seen the Antichrist. He is like Christ, even the, maybe the, the false resurrection. But it is false. He is not the real deal. And neither is this religion real. And it's described here in verse 2, with whom the kings of the earth. And so the authorities and the powers are drunk, it would be, with the allure, the seduction of this false religion. So it's pictured as the kings of the earth, verse 2, are committed, committing sexual immorality, and those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her sexual immorality. And this makes sense. The language we've seen that they are in full force following the Antichrist at this point. And he's carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And then I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast. The idea of scarlet here, not blood as much as royalty, full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten Horns, the, the same idea we saw in chapter 13 describing these kingdoms. And it's going to explain who they are here in a moment, the seven heads and the ten thorns. But it's, it's a woman who is out of place. It, it's beauty, but ugly. She's clothed in purple and scarlet, which would be royalty, beauty. But then as well, I guess you could say beauty, gold, precious stones, pearls, and having her hand a gold cup full. But what of, full of what? Of abominations. And of unclean things, of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead, a name was written, a mystery. Which also he's going to explain here. Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, and of abomination of the earth. That is to say, this is a picture, not only of a city, Babylon, but of all of Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots. That it, everything flows from the same idea that you can build your 
kind of temple, as it were, to the heavens and be like God. That pride is at the root of all false religion. You can save yourself, and so does the great. It's the mother of all the harlots and of the abominations of the earth. And then I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, which we've seen that over and over. They're wondering, how long, O Lord? And with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. They can't get after Israel at this point in history. And so he turns, he can't get after, if you remember, just the symbolism in chapter 12, but he goes after God's people that have not taken the mark. And so when they saw this, when John saw this, he wondered greatly. And thankfully, we get a few answers. Not all the answers here, but we get some of the answers of this vision. But I see this summary of this vision in this way, that this promised false religion that everyone is going to unite around during this tribulation period is identified by this idea of a harlot or a sexual morality or adulteress. And there's idea of beauty, of purple, of scarlet, of gold, of pearls, that it looks tempting, that it's a promise of happiness. False religion is simply that. It is false promises. You think of the scriptures and even people when they look at the whole arc of scripture often use that language of of promise in the Old Testament and promise fulfilled in the New Testament. That God has made promises. He's made covenants with his people, promises to send his son, to send the Messiah, the Redeemer. Even here, he's making promises in Revelation to return. Well, false religion, you can see in true religion is God's promises to his people. False religion is simply competing promises. It's promising something else. It's promising that you can get to God or get to heaven or get to salvation in another way. Which is tempting because when you come to Christ and you come to the Father, it says you have to humble yourself. And it's going to say, no, you don't. That's what false religion promises. There's this idea that you're always looking for happiness or fulfillment, that the grass is always greener. And it's easily something that is ensnared. This language of of the harlot is used throughout Scripture, but no more prominent than when it's compared to lady wisdom in Proverbs. So in Proverbs chapter 6, verse 24, it says this, To keep you from the evil evil woman. Again, ladies, don't take any offense to this. It's it's just kind of saying the compliment. Uh, from the smooth tongue of, her, of the foreign woman. Do not desire her beauty in your heart, nor let her capture you with her eyelids. The idea of batting eyelids. For on account of a harlot, one is reduced to a loaf of bread. And an adulteress hunts for the precious life. This is Solomon warning his son. Listen, this is a trap. A trap that is going to take everything you have, which would be common in that world that oftentimes it was a harlot who would not only, you know, happen, but also take everything from the person. And so you're reduced to poverty, a loaf of bread, and the adulterer's hunts for the precious life. Which he explains, what does that mean? This reality in, in saying, I think of a father to his son, can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Or can a man walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? These are rhetorical questions. This is, the answer is, you can't. You can't grab the fire this Memorial weekend and bring it and not get burnt. It's just, that's not how it works. You will get burnt. Your sin will find you out. 
And so, so is the one who goes into his neighbor's wife. Whoever touches her will not go unpunished. And actually Proverbs goes on to kind of vividly describe that in many ways, but it's to say, you you think you're going to get away with that? No, the angry husband is coming for you. There's always a consequence for action. And false religion promises no consequences for actions at all. You do what you want. You fulfill your own desires and there will be no consequences. It'll just be pure fulfillment and pure happiness. And that isn't how it works in reality. And it's not how it works in life. And so it is false. It's a false promise. Be like, in this case, run from it the way that we see Joseph run from Potiphar's wife. So false promises from false religion, false promises of happiness, and false promises, secondly, of power. Look at verse 7. It says, And the angel said to me, Why do you wonder? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. So this is helpful because you're going, this sounds weird. It, it is. But thankfully we get a description of what does it mean. Also it's helpful if you remember back to chapter 13 because that, that helped us understand chapter 13 a little bit as well. Verse 8, it says, The beast that you saw was and is not. I think it's a reference to what I consider to be a false resurrection of the Antichrist. It's about to come up out of the abyss and go to the destruction. And those who dwell on the earth, whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, will wonder when they see the beast that he was and is not and will come. Seems to be wondering what is going on in, in God's plan. And there's a promise here of, or, 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 or at least a, an introduction of pay attention Maybe we're not even going to know what this wisdom is until the period comes. But it seems to be this idea of sit up. Here's the mind, which has wisdom in verse 9. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. And so I think at least for when the time comes, there, there are going to be those who will wonder. And you can see an explanation here that makes sense. The seven heads are the seven mountains on which this woman sits, and they are seven kings. There's the idea of mountains being um, kingdoms. And then there are seven kings on them. Five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must remain a little while. And the beast which was and is not, so Antichrist, is himself also um, an eighth and is one of the seven, and he goes to destruction. So we looked at this before, this idea that these uh, kingdoms that are coming, this, this false religion that is coming to the world, that it explains this dream that is from Daniel chapter 7. But these first five kingdoms being Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, and Greece. And there really is fairly strong agreement even between all views of Revelation on that. And they have fallen. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece have fallen. But Rome still is when John is writing. And they will fall. And then understanding that the one that comes next is this idea of revived Rome that will come and it will remain for a while. And the beast, the Antichrist here, is also it's seemingly going to be not only a seventh, but an eighth with, it seems to be referring to, I think, the, the false resurrection at that, seemingly in that second half of the tribulation. But beyond that, there's going to be these kings, these ten horns that represent ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom. That is, in the future, they will receive a kingdom And they will receive authority as the kings with the beast for one hour. That is for a very short period relative to periods. I've seen that idea of three and a half years over and over again. Well, this is going to be a short period 
this description. And these have simply one purpose. They are to give their power and their authority to the beast. They're there to worship at his feet, to give him, as you kind of, we know, we looked at with the false prophet, they're going to bow down and worship towards the beast. That's exactly why they exact that is their, their purpose. Their purpose is not going to be repent. Their purpose is going to be to bow at the feet of the beast. They have one purpose. In verse 14, they, these, so the conglomeration of them, which we kind of saw at the end of 16 last week, they're going to wage war against the lamb. And the lamb will overcome them because he is Lord of lords, King of kings, and those who are with him are the called and the elect and the faithful. And he said to me, the waters which you saw, which we saw this, that they sit on is a description of the peoples, the crowds, the nations, and the tongues. And so the ten horns which you saw, the beast, these will hate the harlot and will lay waste to her, make her naked and will eat her flesh and will burn her up with fire. Again, extremely graphic language here. But this false religion is going to promise power. And it's not just going to be the ten kings that accept it, but it would seem that almost everyone, at least is the feeling you get from Revelation, there are those who seem to get converted, but they are a small minority. As you just see the description over and over again of the chapters we've seen, that they do not repent, that they, thinking back to chapter 16 just last week, that they deserve it. 16 verse 6, that they did not repent. Verse 9, 16, 9, and verse 16, 11, they did not repent. Why? Because they think they can win a different way. They think they can follow the beast and he has enough power to maybe overcome the lamb. It's this whole idea that they would, they would rather party in hell, if you've heard that phrase, than to serve in heaven. That's what they're thinking here, but they have miscalculated extremely. Ultimately, we see this false religion, this desire for fulfillment, this desire for power outside of the gospel itself destructive. In fact, that's best described there in 16, that ultimately it is going to eat itself. And you can see that with pick on unhealthy habits. We all have one or, you know, some that I'm sure we could say, yeah, that's probably not going to let me, you know, help me live a year longer. But it is to say, this is extreme. And it's going to turn and the beast and these will hate the false religion. They'll hate the harlot. They will lay waste to her and make her naked. And they will eat her flesh and burn her up with fire. The very thing that they worship, they will end up hating by the end. It's completely self-destructive, seeking power in the wrong place. Seeking what is rightfully God's and not rightfully ours. Proverbs 8.32 says it this way, speaking of wisdom. It says, so now, O sons, listen to me. For blessed are they who keep my ways. And this actually is uh, Lady Wisdom personified. So it's wisdom speaking. Hear discipline, be wise, do not neglect it. How blessed is the man who hears me to watch daily at my doors, to keep watch at my doorposts. For he who finds me finds life and obtains favor from Yahweh. But he who sins against me does violence to his own soul. And all those who hate me love death. It's that last sentence that kind of grabs me and what I thought of as I studied this. And you think of the world at that point in history. This is the most unwise thing that you could ever as all the judgments, the judgments of the seals and the trumpets and the bulls, and yet they don't repent. They think by not repenting that they can avoid submission. They can avoid being obedient, but it ultimately is going to be 
violence against their own soul. You hate wisdom, then you will love here. Lady Wisdom says, then you love death. And that is the only path forward. And so these promises of false religion for fulfillment and happiness and for power, maybe the most alluring though is here that there is independence. There is freedom. This idea, this really you could call it this seduction that we can achieve salvation apart from Christ, that they can go to war with the Lamb, the one who is worthy, the one who received in chapter 4 and 5, the, the title deed to the universe, it is his, and that they can be freed. It's not possible. In fact, you see here in 17 the reminder that it is God who is in control the whole way through. You see kind of hints of it, the book of life written at the foundation of the world. This is his plan, this is his planet, and he's going to put his king, Christ, on the throne Verse 17 says, For God gave it in their hearts to do his purpose, both by doing their own common purpose and by giving their kingdom to the beast until the words of God will be finished. And the woman whom you saw is the great city, which has a kingdom over the kings of the earth. And then it's going to kind of further focus in on fall of Babylon, even how all the, the economics come to play and completely collapse. But 17 is the reminder that this religious false religious promise of freedom is false. It is God who is in control. And note how interesting this is, how the wording is that is God gave it in the hearts to do his purpose. That is, they aren't violating what they want to do. They're doing their own common purpose. They are rebelling against God. It's not that when we saw three people come here this morning into the waters of baptism, it's not as if they came to Christ unwilling. But of course, that doesn't mean that it wasn't God the one who drew them. It was God who gave them a new heart and gave them that desire, but it was not against their will. In the same way here, they're doing exactly what they want to do. In this case, they're rebelling. Their common purpose to go against the lamb. But God is, no mistake, in control. And he will be, it says, until the words of God will be finished. I find encouragement there that God is in control and even at the end here, when you go, how can all of this wickedness be part of God's plan? You have to look no further than you look back at the Gospels and you look at Christ. And you think that is exactly what would be going through the minds of the apostles. Christ is, in their minds, they've confessed you're the Christ. Well, the next thing is that he should be crowned king and should destroy Rome. How is it that his life is at risk? And then ultimately he is arrested and put to death on a cross. And they attempted in that moment to go, well, how could God be behind this? But God knew what he was doing. And by that very wicked, most wicked act of human history, God is able then to redeem a people because Christ has been the sacrifice for them. He bore all of this punishment. We're seeing this judgment met out. We deserve it. But Christ bore that judgment so that we don't bear it as we looked last week. We don't bear the judgment for the wrath of God. God's in control even of false religion. It's this whole idea of freedom. Even in the Christian world that we're completely free. We're free in Christ. Well, that is true in the sense that you are free from. But it's this idea that you are not just free from sin, but you are free to something as well. And Romans 6 
Paul summarizes it then when he says, what then shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you go on presenting yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? This is back to our nature. We are creatures. We are worshipers. We aren't independent beings. We, we aren't existent. If God doesn't care for us, if God doesn't hold up every atom in our body, Colossians 1, we're going to cease to be. We're not independent in that way. So the question is, who are we going to obey? How are we going to live? What view of the world are we going to commit our lives to? And he says so here that everyone knows that when you go on presenting yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. But Thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, this idea you were, you were past tense, you've been freed from that. You were slaves of sin. You obeyed from the heart that pattern of teaching to which you were given over. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. And Paul admits, hey, I'm speaking here in human terms with this analogy that you might understand. He says, speaking in human terms, because of the weakness of your flesh, for just as you presented your bodies as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. That is being more transformed to the image of Christ. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then having from the things of which you are now ashamed? They don't lead to freedom. It's false. For the end of those things is death, but now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you have your benefit leading to sanctification and the end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gracious gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. It is the reminder that we've not only been saved from sin, but been saved to righteousness. The false promise of freedom is alluring, but don't buy it. We still have been bought, purchased with a price, with the blood of Christ. We are his and we should act. As Ephesians says, we should walk worthy of our calling. So as you look at these false promises, the good news here, which we have one more week, a little bit of looking at Babylon before you get kind of the rejoicing and, and the hallelujahs in heaven in 19. But it is the reminder that Christ is on the throne, that Christ is king. And this Babel, Babylon the Great, the mother of all harlots, it is headed for one place. It is headed for exactly what it always was, which was death and destruction. Reminded of the movie Wizard of Oz at the very end. It's the way I kind of viewed these last few chapters. So you could kind of put this at the end of 18, but it's the same idea. You just can't help but go when the the hallelujah comes, this idea of, you remember how the movie ends when they all say, ding dong, the witch is dead. Which old witch? The wicked witch. Ding dong, the witch is dead. Babel, here, the wicked Babel, the harlot, is dead. And Christ will rule and will reign. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time now as we even just so briefly turn to these things that we are reminded of your sovereign rule over not only our lives, but over all of history. 
And so we can trust you and have confidence in you. May this be a day of reminder as well of what you have called us to, even as we are reminded of your good news, the gospel of what Christ has done for us, and that we are to be in the world accomplishing that great commission to tell others of what awaits, that this world provides many options to try to find fulfillment, but to warn people that they will not fulfill. And it's why so many hop from one thing to the next thing and find no contentment. But there is a joy and there is a contentment that only comes in knowing and finding Christ as Savior and Lord, knowing Him and rightfully knowing our place, putting Him on the throne. And just encourage us this morning that that be true of all of us as we are reminded of the realities of judgment that await those who reject Christ. We just pray these things in your son's name. Amen.